What, what would happen if we could change the course of the Gulf Stream or the other great ocean currents or warm up Hudson Bay with atomic furnaces? Extremely dangerous questions because with our present knowledge we have no idea what would happen. Even now, man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. Due to our release through factories and automobiles every year of more than six billion tons of carbon dioxide, which helps air absorb heat from the sun, our atmosphere seems to be getting warmer. This is bad? Well, it's been calculated a few degrees rise in the Earth's temperature would melt the polar ice caps. And if this happens, an inland sea would fill a good portion of the Mississippi Valley. Tourists in glass-bottomed boats would be viewing the drowned towers of Miami through 150 feet of tropical water. Foreign weather, we're not only dealing with forces of a far greater variety than even the atomic physicist encounters, but with life itself. bringing you the perspective from the plains you know me chuck williams coming in with my buddy as usual brendan williams brendan how you doing doing good man you're out there burning in the 90 degree heat we're back here freezing in the 40s (laughs) yeah dude discomfort (laughs) in every polarity (laughs) and also coming from arlington texas is the great matthew hodges matt how's it going you know, I'd be doing better, but I got a killer sunburn at Firefest, and I've just been like putting on aloe and like rubbing it down with money as much as possible. <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> well, hopefully, you let that aloe and that money from the Benjamins seep in. Um, <laughs> and if it's still not feeling good, put some tussin on it. Let that get to the <laughs> the tussin. <laughs> Absolutely. And. For the listeners today, we have a special guest. Matt, why don't you uh, let them in on who this great guest is? Yeah, certainly. She is a climate change activist of many years. She's an attorney out in Eugene, Oregon, and she's also a really good friend of mine, Apollonia Geckner. Welcome to Liquid Flannel. Apollonia, how's it going? Great. Loving it out here in the Pacific Northwest, sitting here at a cool 55 degrees. Cool, 55 degrees. Eh, it's about close to that here, right? You know? Yeah, some days. In the Midwest and the Northwest. So, what? you know, everyone feeling good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we got a lot to talk about. I am mainly glad to be back from the East Coast. I was in D.C. over the weekend for the Climate March. So, hopefully, we'll yeah, be welcome able to home, get into Chuck. that. Yeah, thanks, thanks. It's good to be back. It's good to be back in the balmy coldness of Nebraska <laughs> April and may <laughs> so because it was um, it was pretty hot out there i think it was incredibly hot i actually got sunburn which is not something <laughs> that i normally do but anyways <laughs> you know and what else do we got on the list i think we're gonna have to rag our boy brett stevens again right matt oh yeah a little bit uh you know while we talk about the climate march you know there have been a couple of editorials about 
basically the problem with climate scientists and climate terrorists, I think is, uh, we're, we're calling them now. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, addressing this major threat to national security. Yeah. All that and more, and it's going to be a lot. So I think without further ado, let's just jump right in. Hey, yo, fifth grade, it's time to rhyme it. These are the factors that affect the climate. Get up on the map and don't give me attitude. Degrees to the north and south, call latitude. In the middle, sun really beats down. That's why it stays warm all year round. As you move away, higher latitudes are colder. Climate zones, tropical, temperate, polar. So you know that the equator is hot, but just ask the penguins, the poles are not. Equator's hot, but the poles are not. I said equator's hot, but the poles are not. So this last weekend saw the March for Climate, the People's March for Climate, uh, mainly in D.C., but then I think there were something like three or four hundred or six hundred satellite marches that happened all over the place. And I know that, Chuck, you were there down in D.C., and I'm really hoping to just get some of your ground-level perspectives on that. Yeah, Matt, well, it was... It was incredible. I mean, as you all know, I've been to marches and rallies in Nebraska for various causes, but this was the first time I've been able to be or have the uh, opportunity to be in D.C. for a significant march like this. And it did not disappoint me, that's for sure. So, um, you know, they were saying that there were thousands up to tens of thousands of people that were there. I believe it. You know, I was marching, I kind of started at Union Station and got to Capitol Hill, and Capitol Hill was just packed full of people, Yeah. and then everyone took off onto Pennsylvania Avenue and marched over to the White House, so... Nice. Yeah, it was great. uh, And and Trump wasn't there at the the White House, right? Uh, no, he was, well, he was leaving there. What were you saying, Apollonia? I was going to ask if Trump was there and what his reaction was. Well, you know, Trump was actually flying away in what's it called? Marine two or Marine one or whatever. In terror. It was in the helicopter uh, (laughs) over to his rally in Pennsylvania. So yeah. He was leaving. He wasn't necessarily leaving in fear of the march. I think he was probably leaving more in fear of the correspondence dinner that was happening that evening. So uh, <laughs> I think that was not coincidental that he had this rally planned at that time. Well, yeah, it was it was a bad day for him, right? Because it was the the traditional day for the White House correspondence dinner and this giant march was going to happen. And they were yeah. really smart about counter-programming where they had this uh, basically just a campaign rally for him. They're up in, in mid Pennsylvania, um, which is, you know, that's, that's deep red Trump country at this point. So <laughs> Keystone um, state, was, right? Right. Yeah. And they were able to, you know, I, I think probably two Trump voters, they were able to successfully message that, you know, you've got like, a room full of people wearing tuxedos and evening gowns, and that's the media. That's the super elite media. And then you've got a bunch of like bearded hippies out at the climate march, marching in Washington right now. While we're here, you know, hashtag MAGA. Right, exactly. You know, and I think, you know, the cool thing about the climate march to me is that it wasn't just a bunch of bearded hippies. I mean, 
bearded hippies are welcome and they definitely represented in full force out there <laughs> right. but you know i was impressed with the amount of people of color that were there you know immigrants muslims different religions atheist agnostic like it's always those unity aspects of these things that really kind of keep me pumped up keep me psyched make me think that this isn't just you know some outlandish dream of mine or something so <laughs> well and that's where i think that we actually did a good job as the environmental movement this time i feel like the environmental movement's always like so criticized as being very you know white middle class or upper class and, and rightfully and criticized rightfully right? so. that's true but i mean these issues are i mean environmental justice is a huge issue and the people that are affected yeah. most by environmental justice are people of color and minority communities so it's Absolutely. i think it's really right. great to see that happening now yeah and i think that was something that happened intentionally on the part of the march organizers uh something that the like the tax march or the women's march uh just after inauguration didn't really make a priority it seems like the organizers for the people's march for science really went out of their way to reach out to other communities uh, a lot of uh social justice organizations that aren't necessarily environmental organizations and say, look, climate change is a social justice issue and we want your voices at this march. And it seems like they were really successful at that. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think so. I mean, you saw more than just students there, you know, you saw more than just scientists and teachers, but you did see all of them. And, you know, I did get a chance to talk to a lot of students I talked to a lot of unions. In fact, I talked to a, I think a union from New York or something, and it was like a custodial or janitorial union. And, you know, everybody out there realized that climate has an effect. I mean, if we don't have an environment, there's no jobs, there's no GDP, none of that stuff matters. So right. it was cool. Um, there were artists out there that built this, uh, trojan horse out of wood that was supposed to have like activism inside of it like <laughs> activists inside of it that they were gonna put oh, but it, it looked like uh the reason it was a trojan horse was it was a it was supposed to be a big barrel of crude oil is that right, right? yep yeah. it was barrels that they were like rolling for the feet and a big barrel yeah and i guess someone was gonna be inside it or something but you know, I talked to the guy that created that here and um, variety of ages. You know, I talked to even a little eight year old kid. I mean, everybody out there was excited. We walked past Trump Hotel, which it still blows my mind that he has a hotel. Like right there by the White House. In D.C. Right? by the White House, like down right. the street from right. the White House. Oh, what a uh, what a brilliant play in retrospect yeah. to nail that thing. Exactly. And, and now and, he's his own landlord on the hotel because <laughs> the lease is from the government or whatever because it yep. used to be a post office. Right. And so he could basically just be like, oh, what's Donald Trump's rent? Uh, I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's no, no. Right. He put all all right. of that in a blind trust. trust. It's not a blind exactly. trust. Yeah. It's a revocable trust, which means he still can watch it <laughs> all the time. And all of right. the trustees on the trust are basically his fail sons and Ivanka. Right. So, <laughs> but yeah. I, I do love that the climate march 
is even though right now it's like clearly against Trump because he's the president and he's so terrible about the environment. Yep. This isn't like an event that they were like, oh, Trump got elected. We have to do this. Like this has been going on. They did one in like 2014. They did one yep. like all over the place. So I, I think it's cool that it's able to take a sustained environmental movement and just kind of like bring a groundswell of, of yep. support up into it. And, sure. you know, I would love to to hear more about uh, Apollonia's uh, history of uh, Pacific Northwest environmental activism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I guess like um, one of the things I was going to just say too with the climate march, like the one in 2014 happened. And because of that, we went into the Paris Climate Agreement right after that. And that was considered being very influential to actually getting us to sign on to the Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah, which... as as opposed to the uh, the Copenhagen Agreement, which came just a couple of years before. And there really wasn't a whole lot of, you know, ground level activism. And it turned out that Copenhagen didn't really make any kind of solid commitments. Well, I mean, it's debatable whether or not an international law like that or an international agreement actually like has enforcement mechanisms um but it's definitely a good i think it's a good step in the right direction but as somebody that's worked with grassroots movements um i led the statewide coalition against lng liquefied natural gas pipelines in southern oregon and although i was doing it last year whenever there was not really a lot of stuff going on i mean we had the election going on which people were really fired up about um, it's good to see folks fired up about this again. And one of the things yeah. that you guys talked about last weekend, like moving forward was getting people elected to positions. And I could probably mm-hmm. name you four people off the top of my head that I worked with in Southern Oregon, you know, organizing a grassroots agreement that now hold public positions. So, wow. um, it's, it's working and, and people need to feel like their voices are heard And I think that that's kind of movements like this, like the climate march and the science march. Obviously, a lot of these folks feel like they don't have a voice because it's this administration that's saying we're going to ignore science. We're going to take all the climate information off of, you know, the EPA website. So I don't know. Do you guys think that do you think that protests and marches and rallies like what we're seeing with the women's march and the climate march and the science march? Do you guys think that those are useful or do you think that it's just like a place where we can all stand on our own soapboxes and preach to the choir? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both in the sense that I think right now, in the past especially, it seemed like it's a soapbox moment. But now I feel like there's a lot more of these moments that are happening because of this administration and everyone is pulling out more soapboxes and more soapboxes. And I feel like that's transferring into calls to congressmen and senators and things like that. So I feel like there's a little bit more energy, but I also feel like there's a little bit of fatigue. I'm personally feeling fatigue reading, just reading Trump, let alone the news (laughs) about Trump, but it's like, I'm just hoping that there's not that fatigue within all of these movements, too. I'm hoping that it's sustainable for as long as, you know, everything's in jeopardy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, protest is 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 great. I mean, 
it's not ideal, but <laughs> it's better than silence. You know what I mean? Yep. There's things sure. that, you know, whenever you get a bunch of people together, you know, tens of thousands of people, um, you know, in these marches and rallies and protests, they're always going to be criticized for something, right? Sure. It's never, there's no perfect message or messenger, but it's certainly better than just sitting there and not saying anything. Right. And just saying like, well, Trump can say whatever he wants about the climate and Will just won't say anything. But I think regardless, like, and this is what I always say, I'm like, at least it turns these issues into like dinner table topics, you know, like, and that's yeah. kind of like the first right. step, you know, that sort of like helps sure. people develop their own values about how they feel about these things and where they stand on them. Um, so, I mean, if there's a bunch of protesters, there's 2000 people marching for climate in Eugene, um, and you're not aware of that and you're in the area, you might be questioning like, oh do I agree with these people? Do I not? And that's what also mm -hmm. starts to build movements. You know, that could be the difference between sure. somebody being inspired to like go out next time and, and March. So, yeah. Right. So there was this op-ed from HuffPo by Lucy Emerson Bell that talked about what the climate marches got right and what it was missing. And the big thing she felt it was missing, and I don't disagree with her, was a specific ask uh, mm. Apple, I know that you have at least as much experience as I do with actually lobbying elected representatives and trying to get them to change a position on a thing. And one of the key rules of lobbying is you have to have a specific ask. So the climate march was a demonstration of people who were out there showing their support for action on climate change. And the march didn't really have a specific demand that they were making of the government. It wasn't necessarily don't ditch the Paris Climate Agreement commitments or don't get rid of. I mean, I, I think that all of the the specific things that the Trump administration has been doing against meaningful climate change action were wrapped up in that. But the march itself didn't necessarily have that thing. But I, I see the point also of. This just raises awareness. It gets people out there. It, it makes people feel like, like we talked about last week with the March for Science, it makes people feel like I'm not alone. Yeah. I can go out. There's, there are, you know, 300,000 people marching in the streets of D.C. and all of these other marches all over the world to, you know, that agree with me that we need to be doing something. Well, and I think the problem with the ask, like the idea of having that particular ask, like... I know that uh, Senator Merkley from Oregon and Bernie Sanders are going to propose this bill that's going to put, I believe, America at 100% renewable by something like 2050, but like it's this like shift towards 100% renewable energy. And so wow. like if that was a proposed bill, it'd be like, hey, vote yes on this bill. Like that could be your particular ask. But the right. problem that we have right now with Trump is they're really is no one concrete thing like you know he's got all these executive orders in play he's trying <laughs> yeah, it's all bad EPA. like there's so many <laughs> things like which one of those right. one things is the most strategic thing to ask for and mm -hmm. that's one of the issues that environmentalism has is we all are obviously like we're fighting for the environment we're fighting for these positive things but oftentimes we disagree on where some of those lines are drawn like what's the most important thing right now or 
you know, it's, there's always this question going like renewable energy or endangered species because with dams and with, <laughs> you know, with windmills, like you're, you're killing endangered species off. What's more important to you, clean mm. energy or you right. know, preserving this endangered species. So there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of like pick and choose. So right. I don't know. Well, and yeah. I'm if glad you're Donald you mentioned... Trump, you just got to pick. I mean, you have so <laughs> right? many things that you want to just destroy totally. Exactly. And you just got to like hold them all ransom. You just have to, it's like a wheel you have to spin or something, you know? <laughs> right. But I'm glad you had mentioned um, my man Bernie Sanders there, Apollonia, because one of the parts of the march that I was um, involved with is uh, our revolution, which kind of was the offshoot of Bernie's revolution during the campaign. And, um, you know, they had their own platform, their own mics set up and everything. Um, local representatives were speaking about getting involved and having specific actions within, you know, the progressive, you know, Democrat side to try to bring in more candidates and bring in more action to pull the corporate side of the party to where it needs to be, you know, to reduce this carbon footprint and then was tying it back to the climate change. So that was one thing that was happening. I know that there was a lot of different mini groups out there and that was kind of cool to see too, because, you know, they all need to be represented. They all need to start really putting pressure on these big corporate interests from all sides literally so what do you do when the right to peacefully protest your government is under attack Stand up would you like to tell the audience who you are? Yeah, hi, I'm Mommy AC. I'm from University of Virginia, and we're here protesting the pipelines and everything. Excellent. My name is Vanessa Moses, and I'm from the Eastern Shore of Virginia, and I'm a UVA student as well. So what do you think about this uh, climate march here? Um, this is my first march, and I find it very exciting so far and very invigorating. And I'm excited that so many people care about the climate and that it's not just old people, but also young people as well. So I'm really excited. I'm excited as well. I heard that the uh, last climate march in New York had about 500,000 people. So I'm hoping we can gain more than that here in D.C. What do you think about the people here? What do you think the next step is now that we have the energy? The next step is to get politicians involved. We're right across from the Capitol building. They should hear us and know that we're here to stay and we'll be back. I absolutely echo that. They need to know that we're here and that we can't back down on this because this is our future and it's not fair to the future generations to put them in peril because of money and profit. Well, thank you very much thank for your you. opinions. So why don't you tell the audience who you are and who you're representing out here? Um, my name's Blaine and I'm a student at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about the march? Uh, I think it's a great thing to just have so many people here in support of a cause. And it's a very important part of our, our democracy. What do you think the next step should be? Now that we've got all of this energy, now that we see a lot of solidarity between different groups, what's the next step here? Um, I actually see a lot of them doing it. They're gathering people's information, phone numbers and emails, and the next step should be after gathering everybody's information to just send them information about what they can do next, about more events that are coming up, legislation that's important that they should pay attention to, and just educating the people on the important causes and the important issues is 
probably what the next step should be. Well, great. Thank you very much. And that's a good place to bring up this this other article that came from the Washington Post. It was an interview with uh, Bill McKibben, who founded uh, 350.org. 350 mm-hmm. referring to the parts per million. climate, uh, yeah, the parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we ought to be shooting for. And one of the things he brought up in this article, in this interview, was that what Donald Trump doesn't understand and what I think a lot of climate activists haven't necessarily completely internalized is that so much of this change is happening on a local level. It's happening in municipalities. It's happening on the state level where, you know, California wants to keep its regulations in place about fuel efficiencies and emissions from vehicles. And you have so many municipalities across the country that are adopting, you know, they're doing green building policies, they're funding on a local level, renewable uh, energy, you know, there are whole towns out in East Texas right now, that their utilities bills are almost nothing, because they're harnessing as much solar and wind as they can, they're completely off the grid at this point. And Apple, I know that you have done a whole bunch of local activism and you know the pipeline projects and things like that that really are going to impact people where they live and i wonder if you could speak to you know what what you see is the difference between that sort of local action and the like national or international level and how those things speak to each other well i mean our local action was a lot of, especially with pipelines a lot of that is sort of international action to begin with, because whenever you think about coal exports, oil exports, and then the exports Mm. that we were going to have Mm. were LNG exports, which, I mean, LNG, liquefied natural gas, at a time it was considered a bridge fuel, but now the more that we've learned about it's meth- the methane that it puts into the atmosphere over its life cycle, it's actually comparable to how, like, terrible coal is. So, um if we're exporting to other countries, we're not helping them gain energy independence either. And obviously, like if we're just <laughs> continuing to rely on these things, we don't gain energy independence. But on a more local level, um, it was interesting. One of the biggest issues that we dealt with was actually eminent domain, which kind of brought mm. bipartisan support or I guess bipartisan opposition to this pipeline <laughs> because you had a lot of people mm-hmm. that don't generally fall on that, you know, Democrat Republican line. Yes. They're more libertarian, they're more Republican. Um, and yep. they did not want some, it was a Canadian company that would be building the pipeline to export overseas. <laughs> they didn't want that. They didn't see what the benefit for them was. So they didn't care how much money these people wanted. They didn't want them to be building. It was a 36 inch in diameter pipeline. It was huge. And in jobs there, we have some very economically depressed areas. And the jobs from this project, kind of like similar if you look at Keystone XL and if you look at Dakota Access, exactly. there's quite a few jobs at the beginning. But whenever you're actually at all the construction is done over the course of two years, there's only like 30 or 40 permanent jobs to maintain this. So that's not going to help an economically depressed area. 
Right. And there's yeah. so much talk about like, oh, pipeline jobs and coal jobs, but like all the green energy jobs like vastly outnumber right. jobs. those minuscule yeah. amounts of jobs. Um, mm-hmm. But somehow that's not a, that's not an issue that anyone is talking about. Yeah. So it's very strange. I think with a couple of different things that we're seeing with the Trump administration, cutting the EPA's budget by 31% is going to get rid of jobs. If you're not pushing for renewables, <laughs> right. you know, that's seven. We used the statistic of it was 17 jobs in solar for one job in LNG on that pipeline. Yeah, but they're, those people are liberal elitist globalists, Apple. That's like, true. it's okay to put them out of work. That's true. Well, <laughs> and you know, you had mentioned Eurocrats. with the um, the issues of eminent domain, Apollonia, the, uh, it's the exact same thing with Keystone XL out here, the farmers out here. This is very deep red country mm-hmm. and not necessarily known for everyone wanting to be, you know, tree hugging to the extent that it helps them with their crop yield at the end of the year. They depend on that environmentalism, but they also don't want any government or business, foreign business, telling them, get off the land that you've had or let us use this land. And we've seen a similar thing with the way the wall is going right Right. now, that they assumed that all of these anti-immigration people mostly across Texas, because that comprises so much of the border between the U.S. and Mexico, we're going to be completely on board with this. But these people are also libertarians who own their land, and they don't necessarily want to give up that freedom to, you know, government eminent domain or government approved or corporate or whatever eminent domain coming through their land. And Which I'll is say, great. This is literally... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the beauty of it is it creates some very interesting bedfellows. Um, yes yes <laughs> you read my mind <laughs> you know this is totally it because this is a perfect opportunity for real progressives to get out there and say look we want to help you save this thing that's yours because it helps us so tell us what Preach. we can do to help you yes so this is this is literally how you build that empathy you start getting that common foundation so i love it that goes back to so much of what we've talked about over the course of the show of what progressives, what the left, even what liberals need is a personal narrative that resonates with people. You know, there's a way to make the argument. The people who live around Mar-a-Lago are going to be underwater if we don't do something about climate change. You know, yeah. like they may be proud Trump supporters who were living there, like next to the president's winter white house or whatever. But if their houses are underwater in like 10 years, you know, you've lost all of your wealth, everything that you've ever worked for as an American, you're going to be moving to Georgia or something. And nobody ever wants to move to like Mississippi, you know, just imagine the Mar-a-Lago of the climate change future where it's like all like up on rickety stilts and it's like Trump, old Trump's lair. Boarded in the yeah. Yeah. And stuff. So, somewhere cool. in the middle of like Trump's third term or something. It's like an aqua Mad <laughs> Max <laughs> or something. Yeah. You know? It's like Waterworld. Well, Waterworld. What a couple of the folks uh, that are working at the U of O have done is they've um, created these char- like photos like architectural renderings of places like mar-a-lago that are that it's what their actual projected sea level rise will be in 20 years and how much of it will actually be underwater and they're hoping that things like that like graphics like that resonate with people on the other side and might help them you know 
move a little towards, you know, caring about climate change, even if you're doing it from a standpoint that's only, you know, money based, like it's going to hurt your property. But um, right. those are the things that kind of draw us together and seeing that graphic, yeah. you know, like that's that might be what it takes for some of these folks. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. read an amazing article a while back about a proposal to uh, change the official state map of Louisiana, because when you think of Louisiana, you're like, oh, it's a giant boot, right? Yeah, it's right. like right. kind of an L-shaped like thing. Yeah, yeah. it's like but a big thick anymore. sock. <laughs> but then, yeah, if you actually look at like where the land is now, it's like a sock that your dog like chewed the end off. Oh yeah. Oh, it's terrible so... looking. I mean, because so so much of that state is at or slightly below sea level. So if the sea level rises at all, all of these levees are going to fail. Right. You know, it's going to be a basically a like a region wide Hurricane Katrina when that happens. Right. But I think that's what it takes to get people to to realize what's happening is to be like, look, we have to like legit redraw this map right now cuz like right. that's not land anymore. Right. Like, <laughs> uh, that's the type of thing where people will actually notice like, oh geez, this is a real thing and not just a a hoax by the Chinese or whatever. Right. <laughs> or by Brett Stevens is uh <laughs> as we'll find out. Oh yeah. The thing oh, about yeah. Brett Stevens' article, I got something finally that I, that was bugging me about his article. Um, he said that they were only. All right, hold on. No, oh, no. Okay. Let's okay. let's lead into this right, okay? okay? Right. Because we're right. we're bringing our boy Brett okay. back on the show. Okay. <laughs> Brett Stevens, who who we, who we discussed in deep detail two weeks ago, has joined the New York Times editorial board and had his first article published. Just a couple of days ago, it was on uh, April the twenty eighth. There, so yeah, Apple, go ahead. What, what, what did you take from this Brett Stevens article? Well, one thing really bugged me. Um, he said just thirty percent of Americans care a great deal, and I'm putting up like my little quote hands here. A great deal about the subject, <laughs> despite the thirty quotes. years of efforts by scientists, politicians, and activists. Nearly two thirds of Americans are either indifferent or at least somewhat bothered. Okay, I'm sorry, but I know a lot of people that care about climate change where they're like, yeah, I care about climate change. I want to reduce my carbon footprint, but they wouldn't characterize themselves as caring like, oh, I care a great deal. Like, that's my issue. And I think that 36% of Americans is great. That's a great amount. That makes me happy. Like, And I also know a ton of Americans who don't care about climate change because they've been fed 30 years of bullshit propaganda from energy companies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, and I get that too. You know what other number is really close to 36%? The number of Americans that approve of the Donald Trump presidency. <laughs> like, right. It's yeah. hovering right at that 39 level. I mean, and I bet if you overlapped a map of, you know, the people that approve and that 30% they wouldn't even be in the same place. Never mind. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> so, not. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> but it would actually fill out America. Yeah. I, the thing about that Brett Stevens article that pissed me off is that he's trying to say the whole, you know, the correlation between, well, Clinton believed in the data and she was 100% sure she was going to win. <laughs> there's no way, first of all, there's no way, like, you know, she goes, in the final stretch of last year's presidential race, Hillary Clinton and her team thought they were, if not 100% right, then very close. It's like, <laughs> if they thought that, that's part of the problem. But that's a side well, but note. But the thing is, they, w- they weren't wrong. I mean, she won the popular election by, 
what like three million votes or something. So more than that, far it's more. so it's so easy to look at something like a campaign where you have all these projections and you're not really sure how people are going to break one way or the other on election day. It's so easy to look at those projections in hindsight and go, here's what you got wrong. Like this is why but, their their tools were wrong. But they were saying on a what's a John Favreau's show, Pod Save America, the other day that like if she had won. All of the media would be about like what a genius campaign they ran and how they were able, able course, to overcome sure. these last minute stumbling blocks uh, in order to to make a victory. Right. The point well, is, is that you don't use the scientific method for a, for an electoral campaign like you're not, right. you know, testing a hypothesis in the same way that you would for climate change or anything, you know, like, I don't know, just because Trump won the election doesn't mean that his campaign was ran by geniuses. You know, they stumbled their way to a victory and had no idea what they were doing. And that's yeah. abundantly clear yes. to everyone. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that was pretty annoying. Um, the language that Brad Stevens uses is from such a privileged elite class or at least <laughs> right. self-important class that well and you know, i think i think the most clear part of that is that he he quotes the polish poet uh Cesla milos right as his opening line of this and it's all about how you can't trust people who are 100 percent certain in a thing and right. basically he's making this equivalency between the authoritarian uniformity of thinking under nazism with mm -hmm. the scientific consensus around climate change and i mean nazism was that was an ideology that was based in some i mean you can i guess you can quantify it now it was race hatred and it was economic anxiety and it was a strong man coming into office but that's not nearly the same thing as climate change where you've got thousands of scientists all over the world who are writing within a certain paradigm that you know everything every piece of data that they send back in to the like the central authority which would be the the international panel on climate change through the un agrees that this is a thing that's happening right well my yeah my biggest beef with this article which his his main premise is attacking somehow like the the fact that scientists are so united that climate change is real is to say like well they're so convinced that they're right that they must be wrong it, it makes <laughs> right. absolutely no sense but it just it blows my mind that he will demand like it's not like he was like, well, I used to support climate change when they were like, well, we're 60% that it's real. Right. Like, we're right. still working on it. Um, <laughs> it's not like it he out, was like, know. yeah, no, climate change is, yeah, I 100% accept that. But now they're like, yeah, we worked on it for a long time, and now we're even more sure that it's happening. I mean, we were 60% sure before. Now we're 99% yeah. sure. And he's like, <laughs> you guys are obviously making this up. Like, it, it just, yeah. as As if the percentage of certainty would change Brett Stevens's mind. I mean, yeah. to just be like, well, they're so certain about it. If they were less certain about it, then I'd be on board with climate change is real. That's 
clearly not his position, but yet he's making this argument. Yeah, right. But this is my problem with anybody that denies climate change. Like, I don't care how you want to slice it or where you want to deny it. Like, it's like that joke. It's the comic of like Union of Concerned Scientists or something. They're having a meeting and they, and it's like, what if they're all wrong and we just like make the air and water clean and the world a livable place for no reason at all? What if we stop polluting West Virginia's streams and actually just converted to right. renewable well, resources? Well, like, oh and no, what energy? if there's clean air and clean air to breathe and clean water to drink and our children are going to have a livable life that we don't need to worry about? Like, <laughs> oh, it's such a bad thing. Like, I mean, I don't know. It seems like all these, like, both this Brett Stevens dude and there's this article in the National Review that was just terrible. Oh, the National <laughs> Review article. Yes. And, I mean, they were really just trying to call out climate change on just, like, a lot of just small, unimportant details, it seems like, where it's, like, the big picture is there. You know Right, yeah, saying? so this National... This National Review article decided to completely ignore the substantive issues, and this is by Julie Kelly, published on April 27th in the National Review, about how people don't realize how climate scientists are basically Nazis now. They're, they're so locked into their ideology that they're literally committing violence against people who don't agree with them. Like Brett Stevens, who apparently had some mean notes posted at the New York Times bulletin board in the office uh, about him. The Good. injustice. Yeah. I don't know. It is kind of sad, though, that <clears throat> they're literally, you know, arguing in favor of a worldview that's like, we need to just burn up all the coal till it's gone and then that'll work. Like, what? (laughs) It is kind of sad that this is still an argument that's being waged when, I mean, their their side admittedly is like, no, our plan is just burn it up until it's gone, and then it'll just be fine. Like, how is that argument winning? Yeah. Well, I think this gets back to the biggest issue with the whole thing, and Matthew and I have debated whether or not, I say it's just the corporate structure in general and how corporations are organized. But I think Matthew would go deeper and say that it's just like capitalism in general. Um, Well, I said that on the last episode, right? I I firmly believe that capitalism is incompatible with a true environmental ethic. Hurry, hurry, step this way. The strangest sights on the island. Freaks from the four corners of the world. What you nickels, one dime, a tenth part of a dollar. We've got the show with you've got the dime. It is beyond my comprehension how we can elect the President of the United States, somebody like Trump, who believes that climate change is a hoax invented by the Chinese. (laughs) What did you think of the Global Warming Summit in Paris this week? I think it's ridiculous. We have bigger problems right now. Just a decade ago, it seemed inevitable that world government and world taxes would track every form of human activity. But now their agenda is in deep trouble, so they put on a con man's face of, oh, every world.
world leader, the biggest meeting ever, are here unanimously with the unanimous scientists wanting global government and global taxes to save the Earth. <laughs> Not global warming. You know, Obama said the biggest problem we have is global warming. And by the way, it's supposed to be 70 degrees today. It's freezing Speaking of global warming, where is we need some global warming? So, Apple, you went to a symposium right there. Yeah. Working within within a capitalist structure that had to do with ethical investing as far as climate change goes. Tell us about that a little bit. Sure. So um, the idea behind ethical investing is that, you know, we have this corporate structure that exists where as somebody that like sits on the board of a corporation, like CEO status, you have these certain duties you're supposed to fulfill. And those have always just been about maximizing shareholder profit. Like it's all about that, like ultimate bottom line where why would you spend extra money for environmental or social, you know, reasons? Building up the community where your factory right. is. Right, or, or cleaning up the stream that you're p- polluting into or whatever, or mm-hmm. not polluting less. I don't know. But there's, um, so the idea, which is actually proposed by the professor that Matthew and I took nonprofit organizations from in law school, her name's Susan Gary, mm. uh, she believes that these like fiduciary duties that the managers of corporations, um, these fiduciary duties are totally compatible with investing in environmental, social, and governmental causes. So it's the idea of a triple bottom line where it's not just to maximize. What's the triple bottom line? Can you, can you take us through that concept? I can, I can. So the triple bottom line is not Thank to you. just maximize shareholder profit, but it's also to provide social benefits and environmental benefits. So you've got like okay. the trifecta right there. You've got economic, social, and environmental. So a good example of this is Ben and Jerry's. They have, they're actually organized as like a benefit corporation. And before they pay out money to their shareholders, they make sure that they don't use like human bovine growth hormone on their cows that they get their dairy from. And they contract out with a lot of like good social organizations to, you know, like mm-hmm. the brownies that are in the brownie bite ice cream are contracted out with this awesome company that brings people in that are convicted felons and tries to get them back in the workforce. You know? And I believe there's something something close to like an employee-owned sort of organization that it's not quite a co-op, but pretty much everyone who works there has some sort of an equity stake in the organization also. Yeah, we talked about them in, in business school, actually, uh, Ben and Jerry's. And for a little while there, the they had a rule at least where in order to give the CEO a bump in their annual bonus, it had to be tied to a percentage of what the lowest person makes. So I was going to say, like, what have we seen? Like businesses like Ben and Jerry's or like Zappa or no Tom's the shoes, you know, Mm. social environmental causes like the people will pay more for a pint of Ben and Jerry's just because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just gets to part of it. You know, like I think that if we're going to fight the corporate structure, we fight the corporate structure with the corporate structure. 
with things like ethical investing, because those are better for your business in the long run. And so incorporating that whole idea of just like, not just being about maximizing that shareholder profit is, Matthew, do you have something to say, buddy? I do. I have a couple of objections to this. One of them is one of, one of them is that capitalism will find a way. I mean, it's like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Jurassic it, Park. It it will it'll do the thing where the same way it did with the labor movement in this country, it was able to basically sideline it or find other other ways to to get around that problem. Uh, the other objection I have is that it's a what what you're talking about with people buying like ethical ice cream, and I I know that your argument's not just about ice cream, but it's a a pretty good analogy for what we're talking about when it comes to consumer choice. It's that same idea of the individualization of environmental responsibility that. Basically, we don't need to demand that the system creates better outcomes if we just put all of that on the consumer to make the best choices, that they're going to turn the lights out, they're going to replace their light bulbs with compact fluorescent bulbs or whatever. They're only going to buy Ben and Jerry's ice cream because it doesn't use bovine growth hormone uh, in their dairy. What it does is it, it, it individualizes, <laughs> and what it also does is it squeezes out the bulk of people because there's only a certain class of people who care about these things and have the extra you know buck 50 for a pint of ice cream that they're gonna buy you know most people go to walmart and they need eggs and they just buy whatever the cheapest eggs there are they don't really have a voice in that because the extra buck 50 they're gonna spend on eggs is a buck 50 that they're not gonna spend on rent or a new backpack for their kid to go to school. You guys have anything to say to that? <laughs> well, you know, I think it's all been said. <laughs> you know, I, I will say that I think that you're not going to be able to pragmatically, you're not going to be able to get rid of this capitalist system that we're in right now. So while Quickly, wow. right? It, well, quickly, right. baby you know? steps, baby steps. I mean, you know, we can, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't know. I think that there. I'm, I'm going to can... challenge everybody on this podcast to a fist fight over this issue. Okay, you should. <laughs> you should. Solved. It'll be good. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you're going to be a company, if you're a company that's looking to do an ethical thing, I think that a there can be a market for it if you use business practices. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with being, you know, an environmentally conscious business, but I also don't believe that you can completely rely on businesses to leave it up to themselves to realize right. that doing the right thing for the environment makes business sense. I don't think that most of them will do that. I and I think that it is probably counter to their ability to be sustainable as a thriving business in a lot of cases, but where it can work, I'm not going to turn my nose up at it for trying to make it work. So fair. I, I think it's a baby step thing. I think it's Are a you... baby step thing. No, I, I can get behind that. <sighs> well, I think we're, uh, we, we've, we've talked quite a bit about this. Um, yeah. just a couple of, a, a couple of last thoughts on that one. I thought it was really interesting that a whole bunch of Catholics came out to March at the, DC climate march um following 
Saint, uh, sorry, Pope Francis's guidelines on, you know, this is our world. We need to be taking care of it. The the Catholics do tend to be a bit more science oriented, uh, despite their, you know, like long history of of not doing that. They seem like they've gotten a lot better about that. The National Association of Catholic Hospitals just came out against the new uh, Trump Care Zombie Trump Care. proposal saying like this is clearly just like a ploy to take healthcare away from poor people and give tax cuts to the rich okay that's what the national association of catholic hospitals said okay you see (laughs) trump is trying to seep its way into the conversation no matter what we we should probably just we can't do anything without him i'm just gonna say something about the catholics i mean uh yeah. Having been like born and raised very like devout Catholic, um, I gotta say that Pope Francis is really has he's just been so instrumental to all these people because they're just they're gonna follow whoever's the Pope and if the Pope is mm-hmm. out there, you know, saying that this healthcare scheme is bad or saying like, yo, it's in the Bible that as humans you have this responsibility over this earth and the creatures right. in it. You're gonna get, you're gonna catch a lot more flies with honey than you will with vinegar, and it just goes back to that values issue of trying right. to find the values that these people appeal to. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm so happy that the Catholics are kind of becoming more progressive now under, under Pope Francis. So. And just as a little bit of, uh, like counter programming here, I did pull up everything that American Family Radio had ever said about climate change. Uh, at doing a little research for this episode and they're 100 percent in the in the mode of donald trump and the republican party where you know this is at the at the very most it's a conspiracy by people who want to take down our country and at the very least it's still it's killing people's prosperity gospel you know i can't i can't make money as a as a coal miner if we're going to believe this thing that China says is happening. <laughs> so, yeah, is it, there, there's there's an interesting split there between Catholics and Protestants, or at least in America. Um, so, wow. yeah, just like like basic wrap-up. Chuck, did you have like a couple of words that would sum well, up your experience there in D.C.? Oh, man, you know, I, I would say a um, couple words-wise, pretty inspirational. Um, definitely I'm motivated to find more ways to get engaged in the, um, in the movement of, you know, climate change and also getting into, you know, just more local politics in general and bringing those arguments to the local table. So, you know, also I did get a lot of great audio here, so maybe we'll get a chance here to put in some of what some of the actual uh, attendees had to say about it. So great. Great. You know, this I think is a good time to uh, wrap it up here and to thank our guest Apple for joining us on the show. Apple, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah, absolutely. People find you on the internet. I am at Apollonia Rose on Twitter. If you would like me as well.
Perfect. That'd be great. And as always, you can find us at liquid underscore flannel and follow us individually on Twitter. You can find me at Shaggy2Trope. Brendan, where can they find you? They can find me at Brendan Williams with one L. And Matt, where are you at? I'm at Matt McWait with a W. And listeners, thanks so much for tuning in again to the Liquid Flannel Podcast. Also, thanks to everyone who spoke to me in D.C. Again, hopefully you're listening to the episode. And we will see you next week. Hey, could you tell my listeners your name and what this is? Gene Stokes, this is a Trojan oil drum, okay? We're putting it from the White House. It's filled, with, it's filled with climate activists inside, okay? So just like the Trojan horse in the Greek Wars, the Trojan, we're going to leave it out there, and at night we're going to invade the uh, White House. Okay?